0: Our sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. May our gracious God bless the reading and now the preaching and the hearing of His Word. Well, last week, as our elder Randy led us in prayer, Randy mentioned in his prayer uh, one of the characters from our passage this morning, uh, the man named Simeon. Uh, Randy prayed this for us from a prayer book called The Valley of Vision. Uh, Randy prayed, Let us, with Simeon, Clasp the newborn child, Jesus, to our heart. Let us embrace Him with undying faith, exulting that He is ours and we are His. That is, I think, the main application of our text this morning, that we, like Simeon, would embrace Jesus and rejoice in all that God has given to us in him by faith. So if we want to respond to Jesus the way that Simeon does, we need to see in Jesus what Simeon sees. So this morning as we walk through our sermon text from Luke, I want us just to see four truths about Jesus from the text, and that'll be our outline this morning. Let me give them to you. First truth is that Jesus fulfills God's law. A Second, Jesus fulfills all God's plans. A Third, Jesus is God's salvation. And the fourth one I'll give to you at the end, Lord willing. So here is the first truth we see about Jesus in our text, that Jesus fulfills God's law. In the first verse of our passage, verse 21, we read that eight days after Jesus is born, he is circumcised. Of course, the reason for Jesus' circumcision is that that was commanded by God's law. In the Old Testament law, in Genesis 17, and also in Leviticus chapter 12, God commanded that when an Israelite boy was born, he should be circumcised on the eighth day. That's what we see in the first verse of our passage, Jesus' circumcision. Uh, the second verse of our passage, verse 22, uh, records that after Jesus is circumcised, Luke says, when the time came for their purification, notice the plural, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus all travel up to Jerusalem. But here's what's going on. Also in Leviticus chapter 12, immediately after God repeats the commandment that baby Israelite boys be circumcised, God also prescribes a ritual purification for women who give birth to a child. In Leviticus 12, God says that 40 days after a baby boy is born, his mother should present at the temple an animal sacrifice for her purification. If she has enough money, a lamb and a bird. If she doesn't have enough money, then two birds, two turtle doves even. That might seem really strange to us. Why does God command that baby Israelite boys be circumcised? And why does a woman who gives birth need to be ritually purified? What does that say about women or childbirth or pregnancy? Well, it's very important to know that in God's Old Testament law, being ritually unclean is not the same thing as being guilty of sin. There were many things that made a person ritually unclean that were not inherently sinful. For example, being born uncircumcised. We know that wasn't sinful because Jesus was born that way. But God's laws about ritual purity were intended to be a parable or a vivid picture of our comprehensive need to be purified from our sin. Did you notice that both circumcision and childbirth have to do with human reproductive anatomy? Well, the point seems to be that in the beginning, God told man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory by populating it with his image bearers. Well, after mankind fell into sin, when mankind multiplies, what do we fill the earth with? We fill the earth with the pollution of our sin. So these laws about purification from Leviticus 12, about circumcision and about childbirth, they were meant to picture our need to be cleansed from the pollution of our sin. Uh, They're pictures of God's promise that one day, He will fill the earth with His image bearers who once again reflect His glory, having been cleansed from their sins. Well, in addition to the laws from Leviticus chapter 12, Luke also mentions, or rather quotes, from the book of Exodus in chapter 13. There God commands that every firstborn Israelite be redeemed through an offering. So earlier in Leviticus, God had sent the angel of death into Egypt because of Pharaoh's stubborn disobedience. And God had said that the angel of death would kill every firstborn son unless that family applied the blood of the Passover lamb to the the doorposts. And, And because God spared the firstborn sons of Israel when they applied the blood of the Passover lamb, God had told Israel, hey, all your firstborn sons, they now belong to me. They owe me a lifetime of temple service. So if you, if you don't want them to serve in the temple, that's okay. You just need to make a five-shekel offering to redeem them, to buy them back. Well, Jesus is a firstborn son. So Mary and Joseph and their firstborn son head to Jerusalem to make the offerings for Mary's purification and Jesus' so-called redemption. Did you notice that five times... In our passage, Luke repeats to us that Mary and Joseph and Jesus are taking this trip in obedience to the law of the Lord, or the law of Moses. In verse 22, Luke talks about the purification according to the law of Moses verse 23, what is written in the law of the Lord, verse 24, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, verse 27, to do for him according to the custom of the law, etc., etc., verse 39, according to the law of the Lord. Luke does not want us to miss that Jesus' family is doing all of this in obedience to the law of the Lord. Now, in one sense, Jesus, I'm sorry, Luke seems to be holding up Joseph and Mary as examples for us. We can tell from the fact that Mary offers two birds instead of a bird and a lamb that this was a poor family. And so this trip and these offerings were costly to them, but they performed them in fastidious obedience to all that God's law requires. And that's an example for us. But Luke's emphasis on God's law also highlights for us. The fact that Jesus was born under the Old Testament law. Jesus was born under the Old Testament law. His birth is regulated by it. Now stop and think just for a second about who Jesus is. The rest of the Bible reveals that Jesus is the eternal divine Son of God. He is the creator, the second person of the Trinity. He is truly God and truly man. And unlike every man and every woman since Adam and Eve, Jesus did not have any of the sin that's pictured by the Old Testament cleanliness laws. In fact, Jesus provides the cleanness from sin that's pictured in these cleanliness laws. Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood covers our sins. So why is Jesus born under Israel's Old Testament law? That seems like making the president follow the rules for a guided tour of the White House, right? He lives here, right? He doesn't need to follow the guided tour rules. Why was Jesus born under the law? Well, let me tell you the story of God's law from the Bible to explain. In the Garden of Eden... God gave Adam a law. And if Adam kept God's law, he would have enjoyed eternal life. But God told Adam very clearly, if you disobey this law, you will die. Adam disobeys God's law. He brings death to mankind, and he's kicked out of God's presence in the Garden of Eden. Well, many years later, God chooses a people, Israel, and he brings them to the very Eden-like promised land where God and man again live together. And as God brings Israel into the promised land, God gives them a law. And God tells them, if you obey this law, you can have life in the land. But if you disobey this law, you will experience the national death of exile. Well, Israel disobeys God's law, and they're exiled from the land. Friend, you and I live in God's world, and even if we've never opened a Bible, we know enough of God's law to realize that by nature and by choice, we are repeat offenders against God's law. And as a result, we have forfeited eternal life with God and earned death and exile from his presence. But the good news of the story of God's law in the Bible is that 2,000 years ago, God did something that Ben read for us about in Galatians. God sent forth his son, Paul says, born of a woman, born under the law. So that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's what Luke is showing us. Jesus is born under the law so that he might redeem us. Right? As Luke's gospel unfolds, it becomes clear that Jesus only ever obeys God's law. And so Jesus earns eternal life. Right? Jesus earns a ticket back to the promised land to live in God's presence. But before Jesus receives eternal life, what does he do? He dies. Why does he die? Because we had broken the law and earned death. Jesus is born under the law to take the death we had earned for breaking the law and to earn our right to return to God's presence forever. This is what we heard in the assurance of pardon. From Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And now after Jesus took our curse for breaking God's law, Jesus shares with us the life that he's earned through his obedience to the law. In other words, Jesus was born under the law to fulfill God's law for us. Jesus fulfills God's law on our behalf. As things, let me just say one thing about how this matters on our day to day. Jesus fulfilling the law for us is the difference between slavery and sonship. Jesus fulfilling the law for us is the difference between slavery and sonship. If you go through life thinking, man, I had better obey God because I'm one step away from exile from his presence. I had better obey God because I'm one misstep away from death. Your relationship with God will feel like fearful slavery. You might be very morally serious, but you won't want to be close with God. But the more you come to know that Jesus has taken your death in your place, that his obedience to the law has earned your right to live with God forever. The Bible says that what that produces in our hearts is not carelessness about sin, but fervent love for God as our father, a desire to be holy so that we might be near him. It produces the security of sonship, of belonging to God. That's the first truth we see about Jesus in our passage, that he fulfills God's law. And saints, he does it for us. The second truth we need to see about Jesus in our passage is that Jesus fulfills all of God's plans. In order to see that, we need to meet the man that I mentioned earlier, introduced in verse 25, the man Simeon. Luke tells us there in verses 25 and 26 that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. Luke says specifically that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? What is the consolation of Israel? Remember what we saw just a moment ago in the story of Israel from the Bible. God had brought the people of Israel to the Eden-like promised land to be with him but because of their sin and disobedience, they were exiled from that land. Even before Israel was exiled from the promised land, a God had promised through his prophets, and especially through the prophet Isaiah, that one day he would bring Israel back to the promised land. Especially in the second half of the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 40 to 66, God promises, I am going to bring Israel out of exile. I am going to put them back in the promised land. I am going to fulfill all of my purposes for my people. In that second half of Isaiah, where God is making those promises, 20 times that word consolation or console appears. So when Luke says that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, it seems like what Simeon is waiting for is for God to fulfill specifically his plans prophesied in the second half of Isaiah. Well, here's what's very interesting about that. Where is Simeon as he's waiting? Simeon is in the promised land. Simeon is in the temple that got rebuilt after Israel returned from exile. But Simeon is still waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon thinks that it hasn't happened quite yet. We're told there in verse 26 that as Simeon waits for this consolation of Israel, when God brings his people back to himself, the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ The Christ, of course, is the anointed king who would bring all of these plans to pass. So, in verse 27, we read that Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple to fulfill what the law had prescribed. Simeon is filled with the Holy Spirit, and the the Spirit has led him into the temple. And Simeon sees Jesus. There in verse 28, we read that Simeon takes Jesus in his arms, he blesses God, and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel." As we've studied these songs in Luke 1 and 2 over the past month, we've seen that these songs are full of allusions and quotes from the Old Testament. Mary's song, full of Old Testament quotes. Zechariah's song, full of Old Testament allusions. The angel song is only two lines. So Uh, this song is full of Old Testament quotes and allusions. Where would you guess that they come from? What part of the Old Testament do you think that Simeon is alluding to? Simeon is drawing heavily from the second half of Isaiah, the promises about the consolation of Israel. Let me just give you one example. There in verse 32, Simeon calls Jesus a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Does that sound familiar? That's from Isaiah 49, verse 6, which Haldana read for us earlier, where God says to his servant Israel, this individual, I will make you a light for the nations. Okay, that's a lot of information. Let's, let me put it all together here. Simeon is waiting for God to fulfill the promises in the second half of Isaiah, for God to console Israel and to bring them back to his self. Simeon sees baby Jesus and he says, Here it is. This is it. This baby in my arms is the one who will fulfill all of God's plans. He will bring the Gentiles into the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Uh, This baby is himself the glory of Israel. He will bring back the preserved remnant of Israel. In other words, Jesus fulfills all of God's plans. Uh, The Apostle Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians. He says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Uh, One clear implication of this truth that all of God's plans are fulfilled in His Son, Jesus, is what this means for those who reject Jesus. After Simeon's song of praise, there in verses 28 to 32, Simeon tells Mary, he says, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." As Simeon teaches, that only those who believe in Jesus experience God's consolation. All right, the, the rest of Luke's gospel and Luke's second volume acts, they bear out the truth that many, both among the Gentiles and in Israel, fall because they stumble over the stumbling stone that is Jesus. And many rise as they receive him. And step into the light of God's grace. If Jesus fulfills all of God's plans. There is no alternative track salvation. Only Jesus can punch your ticket back to the new Jerusalem. Here is one more implication of this truth. That, God fulf- that Jesus fulfills all of God's plans. The reason that God tells us about his plans is so that we would hope in Jesus. When God speaks to us about the future, He is not so much giving us a puzzle to solve as He is dumping gas on our worship, our hope in His Son, Jesus, the one who will bring all of God's good plans to pass for His people. A Christian, the 66 books of your Bible are like 66 lenses in a giant telescope all stacked up over Jesus, that we might see him more clearly and hope in him for our future. Not only does Jesus fulfill the law, Jesus fulfills all of God's plans. That brings us to the third truth that we see about Jesus in this passage, and that is that Jesus is God's salvation. Let me say it differently, Jesus is God's salvation. And we skipped over what Simeon said there in verse 30. Look at verse 29 for context, running on into verse 30. Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon didn't see Jesus die on the cross. Simeon didn't see Jesus rise from the dead. Simeon didn't see any of God's people justified on the last day. As Simeon didn't see the millions of lives that God's transformed by his Holy Spirit. As Simeon didn't see anyone enter the new creation at Christ's return. But Simeon sees Jesus and he says, God, I've seen your salvation. Christian, do you realize God's plan to save you is a person? as humans, one of our greatest needs in life is for other persons. We need to know and be known. We need to love and be loved. We need guidance and perspective and help. We need other persons to be with us. Friends, Jesus is the person that you need the most. He is God's plan to save you. God's salvation to you is to give you Jesus so that you know him and he knows you. God's salvation is not a 12-step program. It's not a philosophy or even a theology. God's salvation is not a magic wand or a genie. God's salvation for you is his son, Jesus. In my own time in God's word, I've just finished reading through the book of Acts. In the second half of Acts, things are just rough for Paul. It's like snake bites and shipwrecks and beatings and prison. It's tough. In the middle of Acts chapter 23, Luke makes this comment about the day that Paul is almost killed for speaking about Jesus in Jerusalem. Luke says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said to him, take courage. Jesus says to Paul, just like you've borne witness to me in Jerusalem, so you need to do it in Rome. A Christian, our, our experience is often less dramatic than that. Uh, the Bible suggests that if, if you're not an apostle, it, it seems unlikely that you would hear God's voice audibly. Not impossible, but unlikely. But Christian, if, if you've known Jesus for long Haven't you experienced Jesus standing by you in your sufferings? Haven't you experienced His Holy Spirit speaking to your heart? Take courage. I'm with you. The job's not done. I I know sometimes in our broken world we don't feel that way. But Christian, haven't we known something of the sweetness of the salvation given to us in the person, Jesus Uh, on top of the sweetness of our personal relationship with the person Jesus. You realize that Jesus is the only person who can get the job done in terms of saving you. Jesus is the only person qualified to save us from all of our problems. Jesus alone can save us from all of our sadness, from bodily decline, from death, from every painful circumstance, from sin from guilt, from hell. Uh, John Calvin writes about how Jesus himself is our salvation in these words. Calvin says, we see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity, in His conception. If gentleness, it appears in His birth. For by His birth, He was made like us in all respects, that He might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in His sufferings. If acquittal, in His condemnation. If remission of the curse, in His cross. If satisfaction, in His sacrifice. If purification, in His blood. Calvin says, in short, since rich stores of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Brothers and sisters, Jesus fulfills God's law for us. Jesus fulfills all of God's plans. And Jesus is himself our salvation. Is it any wonder that Simeon responds to Jesus by embracing him? with joyful praise. As we close, there's a fourth and final thing I want us to see about Jesus from our passage. Uh, In order to see it, we need to talk very briefly about Anna there at the end of our passage in verses 36 to 38. Friends, if you were writing the story of Jesus, if you were making it up, of course, this is not a made-up story. This is a real historical story. Uh, But if you were making it up, to whom would you give the honor of being a witness of the infant Christ? I'd probably give it to like a high priest or some noted rabbi. Or maybe the emperor comes to town and greets baby Jesus on his way into the temple. Who does God pick for that honor? God picks Anna. We read that Anna was a widow. She was either an 84 year old widow who'd been widowed for about 60 years, or uh, as some translations have it, she's something like a 104 year old widow who had been widowed for 84 years. But what does Anna do all day? We read there in verse 37 she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Right? To the world, Anna looks like a nobody. Anna probably doesn't have a ton of people under her authority. Anna probably doesn't have a bunch of people depending on her. But Anna loves to worship her Lord. And the Lord honors Anna as a witness of the infant Jesus. Brothers and sisters, here's the fourth and final thing I want us to see about Jesus. Jesus loves your worship. Jesus loves your worship. It is precious to him, saint, because you are precious to him. Saints, is is this how we think about our worship? As, As we sort of triage the things that we do in a week, we tend to value things that matter to the people who love us, This passage is telling us, friends, that when we bring our hearts to the Lord in faith, when we pour out our hearts to Him in prayer, when we pray for the cause of His kingdom to advance, when we worship Him together as a church, our worship is precious to Jesus. Not because we're great, but because by God's grace, we are precious to Jesus. Is it any wonder that Simeon embraces this child as he does? Let's pray that God would help us to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf, that he has taken the curse we deserved and enacted the obedience that justifies us, that earns our right to be with you forever. Lord, we thank you that he fulfills every one of your plans for every one of your people. Lord, we thank you that you have given your son himself to us as our salvation, as our comforter, as our king, as our friend, as our savior. Lord, thank you that in your mercy, you desire that we would draw near to worship you. God, let us with Simeon clasp the newborn child Jesus to our heart. Embrace Him with undying faith and exalt that He is ours and we are His. We ask all these things in His name. Amen.